essentially, you know, you ask yourself like, okay, if I give up and go back to living the, the way that I was living without the contemplative path, <laughs> what am I going to really get from that? And is that the life I want to live? And is that going to bring me the results or not? Um, and then if you see that the answer is no, I don't want to go back to that life without the, con- without the practice, then come back with fresh energy. It's going to take so many moments of reigniting the engine And sometimes it just doesn't want to go on and you feel so defeated and so exhausted (laughs) and so hopeless. And then it's in those moments when you manage to kick up the engine and you get yourself back up and you keep going when the real, the fruits start to pop out. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 8 of May You Live Well. I'm your host, Alexa Owen, and this week we have coach, organizational trainer, and international speaker Anahita Mogadam on the podcast. Anahita is a fellow student of contemplative science, and we first connected when I attended a talk of hers titled The Neuroscience of Joy at a Buddhist center in my hometown of Reading, Connecticut. Anahita has traveled extensively through the world and through the inner workings of the mind, and in this episode, she offers listeners invaluable glimpses into the contemplative path and all that entails. She brings this lightheartedness and humor when diving into domains like spiritual bypassing and the intoxicating space of spiritual materialism— which left me just laughing out loud, uh, both when talking to Anahita and while preparing this episode for release. And she also brings her wisdom and analytical skill to hot topics like leadership, romantic partnership, and resilience. At the end of the episode, Anahita mentions that she was releasing an online course, which has actually just launched, so you can head over to her website www.neuralbeings.com or find the link in the show notes to check that out. So with that, take a few breaths, settle into yourself, and enjoy the podcast. Okay, Anahita, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. And I'd love to just jump right in. So first things first, could you just tell us a bit about your upbringing and cultural background? Yes. So I'm born in Iran, which makes me Iranian or Persian, as some of us would more nostalgically like to call ourselves. Um, I was basically born into a revolutionary country, so post-Islamic revolution, and in the middle of an Iran-Iraq war. So that's, I think, kind of an interesting little uh, side fact to add to you know, my story. Um, and then my parents moved to Germany a few years later. So basically, maybe around the age of two, three, uh, we came and settled here in Hamburg, Germany, where I then grew up. So I basically would say my home is Hamburg, Germany, but, you know, culturally I identify as Iranian. And of course, when I go back to Iran, it's just a whole nother, you know, it's a completely different feeling of being at home. So um, that's sort of my cultural, cultural background. And, you know, I've been living all over the world. So after I graduated from international school in Germany, I went to London for a university for seven years. I lived in various countries after that and then moved to New York for 11 years. And now after all of this, I've come back home. Uh, after 20 years, I've come back home to Germany. And what pulled you to move to New York? Uh, well, to be honest with you, it was, <laughs> it was the stories of the lives of my rock and roll idols, actually. Um, it was that inspiration for one for one uh it was also that i had lived in london for seven years so the only next sort of step 
in terms of bigger, better, more, more exciting was New York City. And I would say also there was just an intuitive knowing that there's something there for me to find, which I was in the end right about. Well, I'm excited to dive into that in a few more questions. But I'd also like to ask, at what point did you get involved in contemplative practices, contemplative science, whatever tradition or path that you ended up following? Take us back to that moment, your place, your age, what you were doing at that time in your life. Yeah, so it was pretty much around the end of my teenage years when I, as a result of a lot of inner turmoil and I would say also a good degree of disorientation in life, you know, partying too much and experimenting with drugs and um, having, uh, you know, a bit of a chaotic, chaotic life, chaotic relationships to myself and to others. Um, around that time was when I started to question whether <laughs> the way that I was living was, you know, right, meaningful, good, true to who I am. Um, so that sort of, you know, being, I describe that time of my life as a, you know, pretty solid rock bottom experience. Uh, when you, you know, when you get that lost and there's so much discontent inside you that's driving you to do things that are not good for you, um, you start to question. And I, and I considered that really a rock bottom. At that time, also, my father was, uh, he had a brain stroke, so he was sort of slowly deteriorating health wise. You know, that also prompted a lot of questioning. He was also one of my greatest inspirations when it came to the contemplation uh, or the contemplative life. Uh, he got me interested in philosophy, Western philosophy, and then also Eastern philosophy pretty early. So the gradual loss of my father, my own rock bottom experience and feeling of lostness and dysfunctional relationships, all of that together really... Um, basically brought me to a place where I remember I was in my London apartment where I was living during my university years and I felt so hopeless that I just retreated downstairs to my room. I closed the door, locked the door and I just got on my knees and I at that point I didn't have any contemplative path. I had no tradition or practice or anything or any understanding of any anything spiritual or contemplative. Nevertheless, I found myself getting down on my knees, putting my head on the floor and just starting to weep and pray. <laughs> I don't know what I was praying to. I don't know what I was uh, even really doing. It wasn't even a conscious thing. It just was a bit of a flow state in which I found myself weeping and praying for guidance and for help and for support and for some kind of path to open. And I just remember I was in that state for a long time because when I kind of lifted my head up and stood up, a few hours had passed. I checked my phone and I remember thinking, wow, I was in that state for a few hours. And then I will never forget that once I stood up and I left my room and walked back up into the living room, I kid you not, I felt a very, very <laughs> real sense of lightness and relief and connection to something other than myself and my stories. And I would say from that moment on, the contemplative path became available to me. And then only was it months and months later when I actually found myself then booking a flight to India to do a yoga teacher training with, I was 21, 22, going on to 22. So I went to India. I spent three months in India and I did my teacher training and then stayed in one ashram after the other all over India, basically starting from the tip in Kerala all the way to at least um, up to Delhi, Mumbai, perhaps even, not the north. But I went to, you know, as many ashrams that I, as I could, I sought out as many teachers and traditions or, you know, branches uh, as, as I could within the Hindu Vedic system, or yogic system. So that's sort of the time uh, of my, when my quote unquote contemplative spiritual journey began. And then my father had also died right before I went to India. So for me, that was also a reason to just then go and he wanted me to go. So I thought that was a good, good moment to just launch into that new path. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. I I didn't know that part of your story, even though we've known each other in in different capacities for the past several years now. And what strikes me is that that story of rock bottom and breakdown to what sounds like eventually led to breakthrough. It's it's a story as old as time. Um, it seems like uh, it reminds me of the hero's journey and and some other kind of frameworks for that. And I'm also reflecting on my own life and actually how I met you. And I was in a similar state. It was at DNKL, Tibetan Buddhist Center here in Reading, Connecticut. And I had just canceled a flight to go back to Thailand, which would have felt like a nice escape from the suffering that I was experiencing, this existential suffering. And you happened to be doing a talk on the neuroscience of joy at DNKL. And I remember showing up there. And for me in that moment, it was it felt like such a moment of grace, like something that I needed, just a little bit of light to get me through to the next step was shining through. And I've experienced that a few times on my own contemplative path. Do you find that in moments of desperation or need or just a deep longing to break through to the next step? Do you find that the right book or teaching or teacher or person or opportunity tends to come into your life? Or was that really the only time that that happened? Oh, no, you're what you were saying is very, uh, was very true for me, it would come up, uh, or it would happen for me uh, on countless occasions when there was a deep sense of despair or hopelessness or um, uh, confusion countless people and messages and situations and signs and whatever you want to call those. (laughs) Yes, they rain on you. But I feel like you need to have a certain um, sense of openness to it as well to be able to receive that kind of input at the right time. What do you mean by that? Could you elaborate on that a little bit An openness to receive it? Yeah, so I would say that it begins with an understanding, even if it's a non, not a conceptual understanding, but an intuitive understanding that you are not alone, right? So when you're in the middle of your despair and sense of hopelessness, or at least in my case, I always felt like there was something outside of myself or beyond me that I could communicate with, that I could commune with, that would hear me when I would ask for help or guidance. It would be like uh, I would... St- scream something and I would hear an echo back at some point, whether it was a moment later or a few days later. And that's really also when I moved to New York, how I managed to get get around in that initial few years when I went to New York with no plan, no contacts, no nothing, very little money. It was that relationship with the beyond, let's just call it that, that kept me sane and feeling safe. And also allowed me to feel like I'm making progress, even though the progress was not visible and I couldn't tangibly say it's there. But I I felt like I was in a constant conversation or communication with something beyond myself that was um, helping me move, move along the path. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. And, and my next question then is, you know, we know that your early 20s, you had this breakdown, rock bottom moment. You went to India, as many of my friends also did, myself included, when they had those moments and explored yoga and different traditions. Did you end up landing on one tradition or framework that has since kind of helped you move forward on this path? Well, Uh, So initially it was, yes, it was through yoga. And then, of course, the system in which yoga or specifically yoga asanas are embedded in, um, which was my, um, like, let's say, point of contact or practice. So the meditations that I would do, they were based in the Vedic system, um, you know, and then there were the aspects of satsang and and also the, you know, the books I was reading. They were all within the, the tradition of you know, the Vedic tradition, essentially, or what people also often call Hindu, <laughs> Hinduism, I suppose. So that was what started me off 
Nevertheless, I have to say that there came a point when I felt that um, I wasn't making the kind of progress that I wanted to because when I would assess my life, meaning my relationship to myself, my relationships to others, my romantic relationships, my relationship with money and career, I was like, okay, I'm sort of in the same place I was before, except that now I have this like really beautiful world that I can just dive into and feel really good, like in a yoga school or in a satsang or in like a beautiful gathering of fellow yogis. But when I would come back into my life, like when I would come back home, I was still broke. I was still hopping from one dysfunctional relationship to the next. I was still angry at my mom and my family and my culture and my gender. I was still, you know, etc. Then I thought, well, isn't the spiritual life supposed to sort of help you advance in these different areas of your life? And and it, I must probably take the fault on myself for not having practiced properly, or perhaps it just wasn't the tradition and it wasn't a system that was most resonant with me and my disposition. Um, and that pretty much around then, I came across Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, first of all, I uh, met a teacher in New York City who was really sort of the first on the ground contact I had with a Tibetan Buddhist with the teachings. But I have to say, really, it was when I saw His Holiness the Dalai Lama and in 2011, when it was like, you know, I was just, that was it. It was like the moment when everything just happened for me. That's when I start crying. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, meeting him or seeing him and everything he embodies and teaches is what has shaped my life. It is Everything I do is because of him. All the success I have is because of his teachings. Every penny I've earned is because of the way I have learned from him and what he's taught me. And all the joy I experience is from what he's taught me. So really, I owe it to this, this path and to my teacher, the Dalai Lama. Yeah, you're making me <laughs> tear up now <laughs> as well. And I'm recalling a conversation that we had actually just before you left New York to to go back to Europe. This must have been a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And you were explaining to me what His Holiness has described in terms of how he has this bottomless capacity for compassion. And there was something about an ocean and like the expanse of an ocean. And if you have the drop, you have the whole ocean. But I was wondering if you could remind me of that, that metaphor. Oh, wow. If you remember it or something similar. Well, I may have just you described him as an oceanic presence um, or oceanic kind of love and spaciousness, which what I mean by that is when I, as, as a student of his, when I try to really feel into his essence, which means feel into his mind. And by mind, I'm referring to heart, you know, just using words here, but really his heart energy, it really feels like an expansive, spacious ocean of love that is, like you said, bottomless, endless, conscious and loving. And that's how I experience him, whether it's in his presence or whether it's now it's been about two years since I last saw him because of COVID also, uh, whether it's just in meditation. So that's sort of what I feel. And it, it's the best feeling to just connect with that. <laughs> yeah, it's so lovely to hear that part of your story and and also what that feels like energetically when there's that connection with with a teacher, with a teaching before you found His Holiness and started diving into into Tibetan Buddhism and working into that framework in terms of how you live your life and finding all of this, what sounds like a lot of joy and expansion and success through that, what was it like before that? Were you, I think one term that comes to mind is spiritual shopping. Um, were you at any point kind of frustrated and feeling like, you wish you had this connection with a teaching, with a teacher, 
did you try out different things before that? I know you spoke a little bit about yoga and Hinduism and more like Vedic philosophy, but I'm asking because I think some folks who might be listening to this may be at that point in their lives where maybe they haven't found that one teaching or that one teacher. And in my own experience, that that has been frustrating in the past when you kind of have this feeling inside you that you you know what you want, you know you want a path, but you haven't quite landed on it. And if that was true for you at any point, how did you navigate that? If it wasn't true, what advice might you give to others who are navigating that space? Oh, it's very true. Uh, I was myself, uh, you know, what would you call it? Like a compulsive spiritual shopper, <laughs> you know, in the endless marketplace of spirituality and spiritual gadgets and tools and paths and systems and oh, young and old and etc. cetera, uh, reinterpreted and so forth. And that's what I found. So that's, that's when I, that story of, you know, when I found myself reflecting back in my life, on my life and seeing that I hadn't really made progress, that I was still in a very dysfunctional place. That's when I realized, wow, I've been, I've been just um, in some spiritual la-la land. And I have been, um, you know, my, it's been an identity that I have acquired as a spiritual person who dresses a certain way, who eats a certain kind of food, who, you know, drinks green juice and who hangs around with people with, you know, like big clothes that are all like organic and whatever, and goes to like trans dance classes and drum circles and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to make fun of it at all because I, know that sometimes that's what it takes. It takes for people to just get completely immersed and maybe even lost in the vast world of, you know, healing, self-personal development, self-healing, new ageism, <laughs> spirituality, whatever, to, to then find something authentic and to find the right path. Um, but, you know, it's an intoxicating place because it feels so good to be at like a you know, conscious dance party where like everybody calls you a goddess and, and, you know, boosts your ego by, by telling you that. And then you get pulled into a little corner where someone's giving you like a tantric earlobe massage. And then before you know it, like you're taking kombucha shots from some little kombucha <laughs> fermenting uh, business in upstate New York. And then, you know, mm. it's like, it's so easy to get so intoxicated by this world of spiritual materialism and then all the stuff that then pops up and is sold to you because you need that, you know, you need that gadget and you need that extra whatever for your yoga mat so that it doesn't, you don't slip. And then you need the lavender oil to clean it with. And it's an endless, it's an endless um, path of consumerism and continued lostness. <laughs> So it defies the very purpose of a spiritual path. And it's just a way to make yourself feel better about the pain that you probably are trying to get away from. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, so much spiritual bypassing to go along with it. So really appropriating spirituality to avoid looking at some deeper, uncomfortable things and, and also become being realistic. So you obtain a spiritual sense of a worldview or an identity to bypass reality because you don't like reality. Reality makes you feel uncomfortable. And that's what I was doing. My reality was not something I wanted to look at, let alone like dive into and correct. So the spiritual like ground that I was bypassing on or through was so much nicer. Like all of a sudden I was Anahita the goddess. My name happens to be a name of a water goddess in Persia. So I was like, damn, like, you know, you find, you look for all the confirmations around you <laughs> to just say, you know, I'm this grandiose enlightened being who just needs to, you know, continue drinking green juice and everything's fine and going to drum circles. But then when I had my rude awakening, I was like, oh my God, I have so much. Can I curse? No, right? Go ahead. By all <laughs> I means. have so much shit to clean up. Oh my God. I have so much trauma. Well, developmental trauma. I'm fortunate to not have experience other than like, you know, slight trauma from being bombed by Iraq, but um, um, by Iraqi military, that is. Um, I don't really have great, very, very big traumas, but I have my share of developmental trauma and I had a lot to clean up, a lot to look at. 
And that's where the Tibetan Buddhist path, which is really not glamorous, it's really rough, it's really hard, it's very, initially can be even very masculine in the sense that it's so structured, it's so discipline oriented, it's so mechanical in the log in the way that you know logic is taught, in the way that meditation is practiced, in the way that the scriptures are read and recited and repeated until your tongue falls off. Like all of a sudden, you know, traveling to see His Holiness was not like going to some beautiful ashram where I'm going to be greeted by like a, an entourage of angels, like taking me to like a Ayurvedic massage. It was like dirty. There was cow shit on the ground on, on the way to his temple. The temple is not luxurious. It's this big, cold, stony area where you have to sit on the cold stone floor, like squeezed in the middle of 3000 people. You know, it's raining. If you go in monsoon, it's just like, it's, it's a rough experience the guest houses are really run down. You get to glimpse His Holiness for like three minutes if you're lucky. If not, you have to look at a screen for four hours at five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, whatever. So, but that was the training and the disciplining of the mind that tested whether I'm serious and I'm committed to the path. And I'm grateful for all of that. And it was a very different experience from the first sort of rendering of my journey. And then as you know yourself, bringing in the psychology, the psychotherapy, so the, you know, the more the scientific element um, into the spiritual path or the Buddhist path for me was like, that was the nectar. When I started to understand how trauma works, how the mind-brain connection works, how memories are stored in the body, in the brain, um, how we can slowly rewire some of these old I would say primal functions of the brain, how we can upgrade them by training the mind. So all of that was just like, ah, it just, it hit home. And the integration of the scientific and the Tibetan Buddhist rigorous, but also really magical path together became my way of getting back into reality, transforming my life, growing the fuck up and becoming an adult who defines being spiritual in a completely different way now. How would you define being spiritual now? Being realistic. <laughs> it's just being really realistic. It's being grounded, sober, responsible, kind, realistic, you know, taking self-responsibility. All the things that I was actually running away from in my pursuit of spirituality are now the things I realize are what makes you spiritual. It's about understatement. It's about humility. It's not about having an identity that you flaunt. It could be so charming to be a spiritual person who wears like long flowy garments and like talks spiritual language and is walking around trying to change everyone. But that's not spiritual. That's, I'm sorry, but that's really unrealistic and naive and selfish, actually. <laughs> Gosh, I sometimes look back and think about how many how many years, how much time I invested essentially just trying to feel cool and, <laughs> and eventually just coming around to the recognition that what I'm doing is not, it's not what I really, really want to be doing. And what I'm diving into, it's not really having the effect that I'm genuinely seeking. And I think it, Ethan Nickturn, who is a wonderful Buddhist teacher um, and teaches at Nalanda in the CPP, Contemplative Psychotherapy Program. He talked about spiritual bypassing mm -hmm. one class earlier in the year, and he said, you know, if, if you think about what a bypass is, if the bypass works, take the bypass. Yeah. But the thing is, the spiritual bypass, it's not working in that it's not really landing an individual in a space that is going to kind of facilitate the changes or the results that they want to see. And those results being joy, genuine joy, happiness, connection, relationship, um, and the list could go on. Exactly. So thank you for for elucidating that and and putting it so clearly. And I'm curious now then diving deeper into Buddhism or perhaps specifically Tibetan Buddhism, what are the basics of that framework? I know this is a big question, but uh, part of what you do professionally is speak internationally about Buddhism and things like suffering and cause and effect. What is it about that framework that you connected to specifically and that started to yield results when you committed to it? 
Yeah, um, it really was. It began with the teaching of kindness and compassion and extending myself and my efforts up to others. Um, so not just being entirely focused on my own benefit, um, but also or on my own happiness, but really also understanding that my own happiness is multiplied when I focus on the happiness of others. And then that was a bit of an interesting little experience because for the first maybe year or two years in my Tibetan Buddhist path, if you want to call that, when I started, it was all about, I, I just fell in love with this idea of making others happy, right? Because I've never lived like that so deliberately, so intentionally going out of my way. And I went to Nepal with my teacher, teacher and some students and we just served communities there. And everyone I came across in New York, I was just committed to making everybody happy. And I did that for a few years. And it was really, really transformational to experience that, um, to help people find their path. And that's actually how on that sort of make others happy mission, that's how I actually started my coaching business. Because I'm like, I love this. So I'm just going to turn this into my work. <laughs> and I did that for a while. And, you know, also... You know, the teaching on if you if you want to experience abundance, be generous, right? So generosity, the spirit of generosity is the cause for abundance and having. So then I was like doing everything I can to give to others. And if I made money, I would just share it with others or help others. So I did that for a few years. And then again, I was like, oh, okay, I think I have a bit of a blind spot because I forgot myself. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been so um, amazed and and so, like, what do you call it? I was so excited about this this feeling of, of joy that I get from making others happy that I forgot that I also have to go out of my way to make myself happy. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, what does that even mean? So that that, to answer your question, that was the first aspect of the teachings that really, really got me started and also, I think, turn things around for me. But then, I, as I just said to you, I got to this point where I realized, okay, no, I have to also include myself. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, we say, for the benefit of all sentient beings, it's all focused on all sentient beings. That doesn't mean you're looking outside of yourself at all sentient beings. It means including yourself. <laughs> so then, then came the whole question about what is self-love and how do I live? if I integrate myself into the sort of map that I have created of making others happy, where my own happiness, you know, that metaphor of like when you're overflowing. So when your own cup is full, that you give from a place of overflow versus from a place of deficit. And then the psychology there is also so interesting because then I started asking, okay, of course it felt good to give and to make others happy, but was I doing that to, again, get some kind of validation because I have some kind of developmental trauma around that where I need validation and need to, you know, fight for other people's approval and love. So it's so easy to get your psychological <laughs> imprints to take over your spiritual practice. And suddenly you give, you start finding yourself giving and making other people happy. And you think you're an amazing Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, but really you're just reinforcing these old patterns of like needing validation, needing to be good enough, needing to be loved, needing to be, you know, applauded. And so that was, but it was good because it, it took me to that place and then it opened my eyes to some things I had to again heal and correct in myself and then give from a place of genuine giving, genuine wanting to give without the need for validation and the need to re reinforce my sense of self, which is an ongoing process. You know, of course, I still find myself doing things because I want validation. Like, is that ever going to go away? I don't know. <laughs> But it's good to check in, right? And that's where being a practitioner means you, you try to ask yourself, what is my motivation before you do anything? Whether it's a post you share on Instagram, social media, or it's a gift you give to somebody, like, why am I doing this? What is really my motivation? That motivation, asking motivation is something that in terms of a, a core a kind of tip or tool to come back to in and how I think, how I speak, how I act, what my behavior is saying, that's something that I find is just so potent and, and helpful and, and simple and beneficial. And you've also, Anahita, you've just outlined, I think, a really 
spot on example of what it means to be a contemplative learner and the contemplative learning process. And this is this is something that I just wanted to name and point out because when you were describing your path and feeling like you really understood a teaching and then it turns out that it was your ego or personality structure that actually grasped onto it and then having another aha moment and I don't know how much time had passed say between those two those two moments sometimes for me it's months or even years well, it was like two and years, two years probably yeah so so could you could you talk a little bit about that because if we are going to call it, say, contemplative learning or the learning that takes place in an experiential way as as a practitioner, it's pretty different from, say, the learning that happens in school when we're growing up where we, say, study for the test and we check all the boxes and we take the test, we do well, and the information is there, and then we just never really think about it again. Or it can feel like a more linear process, whereas a contemplative path doesn't feel so linear. And I was wondering if you have anything more to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, as I work, I work as a coach and my clients often, so often <laughs> get to this point where they're like, you know, I'm kind of back to where I was a month ago. Like I, I have the same afflictions. I am having the same reactivity. Uh, what the hell? And then that's where I keep having to remind them that this is not a linear path. It's more, if I can describe it as anything, what it feels like to me is a cyclical. And depending on whether you're making an effort, as in putting in the actions that is that are required to make progress, you're going to find yourself going up maybe a bit of a sort of a spiral or a, it's more like upward spiraling kind of thing where um, you are making process, uh, sorry, pro- progress, um, but you can't quite tell, and you might have relapses into old patterns. But every time you relapse, if you've done the work, the relapse isn't quite as bad, and the reactivity isn't quite as intense, and the impact of that whatever negative external event isn't quite as deep, and the sense of self that gets inflammated or infected in that moment isn't quite as severe and then you keep going and then it feels like okay I'm not making progress but then some trigger comes and then you're like oh look at me it didn't really bother me that much and then that's how you oscillate or you spiral spiral your way up and it's very slow and it's not really that um, you know, it's not like you don't see the results really that tangibly. It's not like you go to the gym for a week and then you notice like your biceps grow. It's not quite like that, unfortunately. <laughs> it takes a lot of patience and like acute awareness of the subtlest little changes in your perception and your reactions or your actions. So you got to be really self-aware to be able to actually even notice the changes that are happening and the progress that's being made. That makes sense. And I hope it helps, you know, those folks who are listening in terms of perhaps knowing more what to expect if they're at one of what feels like the beginning steps of stepping onto a meditator's path. And also for those who have been on it for a while, just reminding that, reminding themselves that a compassion and specifically self-compassion on this path is what facilitates progress as opposed to criticism. Definitely. And I would add to this to, to the resources needed self-compassion for sure. So like don't let your old, you know, limited view of yourself, if you have one, which I assume most of us have, take over. Oh, I'm not good enough. See, I'm failing again. I'm not making any progress, etc. So it's not just the compassion that I would say is necessary. It's like unbelievable amount of resilience 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 like don't give up like essentially you know you ask yourself like okay if I give up and go back to living the the way that I was living without the contemplative path (laughs) what am I going to really get from that and is that the life I want to live and is that going to bring me the results 
or not? Um, and then if you see that the answer is no, I don't want to go back to that life without the, con without the practice, then come back with fresh energy. It's going to take so many moments of reigniting the engine. And sometimes it just doesn't want to go on and you feel so defeated and so exhausted <laughs> and so hopeless. And then it's in those moments when you manage to kick up the engine and you get yourself back up and you keep going when the real, the fruits start to pop out, <laughs> I found. Thanks for that, um, that nugget of hope, but also wisdom. I think it's important to know that It does take a lot of resilience and patience as well and wisdom and compassion, but that perhaps those opportunity or those instances rather where we feel like it would take even more energy and resilience than what we have in the moment to, to get back up and start again. Those are opportunities to change the past patterning and to really open into a portal of, well, potential. I would say. Yeah, well said. I want to ask you about love, <laughs> about romantic love, because I think one of the markers of becoming a meditator or engaging in some sort of contemplative practice is that obviously it starts to change a sense of who we are and And that that sense of identity is very much linked to relationships and how we relate with others. Did you find that after embarking on your own contemplative path and the further that you go with it, has it shifted the way that you relate to partners or the kinds of partners that you seek out or you happen to stumble upon? And we can also talk about friendships, but... I'm curious specifically about romantic partnerships as well. Yeah, um, it definitely has informed the whole category. And that's such a big category. It's such a big part of our life, our relationships, romantic relationships. Huge. I mean, it's the biggest test and opportunity for our growth, I think maybe in conjunction with our relationship to our families, if we have one active relationship, but really that's sort of the container in which most growth I find for me has taken place in romantic relationships or love relationships, which is what I'm finally tasting for the first time. Um, yeah, I would say in the beginning when my spiritual journey began or my contemplative journey began, I was drawn to like-minded people. You know, I was looking for people who were doing yoga or were meditating or wore initially, you know, wore like mala beads around their neck, etc. And then later on, I figured, oh my God, these people have so many issues. So the mala bead and the flowy pants and the amazing yoga you know, yoga techniques that this person can do, like handstand and split all at once. And he can sing like all the Sanskrit verses of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra by heart and backwards. But like the guy's a freaking mess. Like he's a disaster, <laughs> you know, in terms of like actual relating or like, you know, managing his own life. So I learned quickly uh, that being that spiritual appearance and identity of the fellow other um, lover that means nothing um in fact it can be even it could be very misleading actually and really backfire so then it took a while for me to finally learn that my criteria for choosing a partner shouldn't be so much based on are they spiritual and are they going to sit with me in, on the meditation cushion next to me are they going to come to you know dharamsala to see the holiness with me and really try to study and feel the same way i feel about his holiness Or is it going to be looking for someone uh, or even creating a relationship with someone from a place of realism, humility, radical self-responsibility for my own actions, um, generosity, genuine love. So really learning the meaning of actual love, wanting, which I define, or I have also been taught that it is called, uh, defined as wanting the happiness or wishing the happiness of the other. And to love another is to do whatever you can to bring about the flourishing and the happiness of the other. So it's, it's giving, it's generous by nature. So really learning that versus, you know, in the past, I may have wanted so much from my lovers, partners. I've been like 
feeling so entitled. Like I get into a relationship because I have all these needs that need to be met by these people. And if they don't meet these needs, then I'm going to get angry. I'm going to start fights and eventually I'm going to break up with them and go find another person to meet my needs. So I have noticed that there's a direct correlation between my own gradual coming into wholeness and healing and the quality of my relationships. And the more I've come into wholeness and healing and maturity, the more I've experienced, I've come to experience beautiful relationships. And in in the case of now, with someone who doesn't even get anything about my spiritual practice at all, but his heart is gold and his mind is peaceful and and he's a good person with ethics and that's all I care about. <laughs> Thank you for for going there and sharing that and also sharing your not interpretation of but you know what you see in terms of what love is and and the difference between love as like attachment and wanting from someone and love as this spacious generosity and and genuinely wanting someone else to to be happy and to share in that joy. Absolutely. Well said. And one other dimension I have to add, if you're genuinely a practitioner, and this is so interesting that I'm getting this teaching now in the context of the relationship I'm in, is you can't hold anyone. You can't hold on to anyone. And then you begin to, when you really apply the teachings or when you're forced to, to apply the teachings to relationship, you realize that, There is no permanence, right? Even if you get married to somebody, there is no permanence. There is no ownership. And as soon as we start to impose these ideas of permanence, ownership, um, like expectations, the whole thing just will start to degenerate, I found. So it's, it's about what I found is sustainable and actually more conducive for a flourishing relationship is to constantly remind yourself that this is all you have with this person you're in with or in a relationship with is this moment, is this day. And then tomorrow you both choose whether or not you want to spend another day with each other and another day with each other. So this concept of like, we're going to be together forever because you're my husband and I'm your wife. It just goes out the window. Like you, you see through that, load of delusion that is going to actually poison the relationship because then you know when you walk into something that promise promise you promise each other forever and ownership then you don't really make an effort anymore because the container takes care of it right you're here you're married to me so you're stuck with me you got to be with me you don't really show up the way you show up when you realize tomorrow this person can leave so let me be my best let, let both of us be our bests as we show up for each other every day so that we stay together. So it's like a very gradual like creating of the relationship one step at a time that's really bottom up and really organic. And I find that to be really challenging and gratifying. <laughs> yeah, when you were speaking, the word organic came to my mind too, like this organic creation of the stability and perhaps sense of safety of a container from the inside out. And and I would think that even I'm not married, (laughs) but for those who, for those who are married and have, have made that vow, there's still that opportunity every day to make a conscious choice to show up and choose what you're showing up for and how you show up for the other person to grow the internal container, I'll call it as well. That's so well said. I love what you just pointed out. And actually you, 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 you added the part that I was finding hard to verbalize. So that stability and safety that one seeks from a partnership, even especially marriage essentially is, is not really provided by marriage even not the vows not the institutional part of it not the signing of agreements nothing or the shared bank accounts it's coming from the inside of the two people Um, it's the inner stability and the inner sense of safety that is first first needed yeah 
Anahita, we're we're coming around to what will probably be our last 10 or so minutes here. And I wanted to make sure that I touched on leadership Mm -hmm. because your work background and your experience is in coaching and international speaking. And you've done quite a lot of work with organizations, um, from what I know, and you can talk more about it, and working with leaders. So I have two questions for you. What is it that drew you to working with leaders in terms of your coaching practice? And what are some ways that we as individuals can cultivate that sense of leadership and and agency over our lives independently, even if perhaps we don't have a professional position in an organization that that constitutes, you know, leadership? I'm doing air quotes. Okay. <laughs> so uh, to answer your first question, what drew me to the leadership um, coaching or coaching leaders? Honestly, it sort of fell into my lap, um, partly because I had some experience with leaders in my previous job prior to coaching, where I was interviewing senior political and business figures all over the world, especially developing countries or emerging markets, whatever you want to call them. So I was like, in my mid-20s, I was having conversations with the minister, African ministers and prime ministers and presidents and CEOs in all over the world. And it just was, a. I was so intrigued by the minds of these people with power and influence. I was so fascinated by, by their minds, what drives them, what fears they have, what vulnerabilities they have, especially the vulnerability part was very appealing to me to really get to, like, I remember once in Botswana, I was with the minister of something and of, let's just keep the ministry out of here for his sake. But, um, and, uh, you know, initially he came on as the minister all tough and funny and cracking jokes and being charming. And then maybe like an hour into our conversation interview and then conversation he's like pulling up books from his bookshelf and telling me about his childhood and he's tearing up as he's sharing these like anecdotes from his life and talking about his spiritual beliefs with me and then at some point he's like I can't believe I told you all of this and I remember it was those moments when I managed to find myself in these really intimate connections with these really powerful influential people that I thought wow, if you can gain access to the mind of someone like this, who's got so much influence over others and over systems in his country and his region, imagine you plant some seeds of virtue, of positivity. You give them some tools to help them be better, kinder, more compassionate towards themselves, towards others, more responsible. Hey, why don't you introduce like a bit of a sustainable angle to your ministry or whatever, like, um, you know, whatever. Um, then you can have so much impact. And I thought that, wow, I love that feeling. So I remember leaving that job. And then years later, when life, quote unquote, doing air, what did you call them? Air what? Air quotes. Air, I just air quoted as well. When life presents you with like one media executive after the other, you think, wait a minute, why am I constantly meeting these kind of people who want to work with me? And eventually I just, I just went with the flow. I, I figured, okay, this might be the area that I'm best at. So I really directed myself towards the leadership coaching and coaching of like more influential people, CEOs, and then eventually opened my, um, what do you call it? My focus to also include young people, you know, 20 something year olds um, in startups to even women, you know, single moms, in suburbs of America who just found my work relevant and interesting. So then, you know, eventually I opened up to everyone, but the key kind of type of person that I work with is the leader and the influence that a leader can have on their world is just so obviously big. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. And you had a second question about how to take self uh, how to become a leader in your own life yeah Oof. well I would say just take radical responsibility for yourself and your life in other words your reality and that's what I work with my clients on when they come to me complaining about their wives or about the government or about their shitty job or the annoying business partner then it's just like okay well you have a choice 
change your situation. And if you can't change your situation, change your view, your mind. Come back to yourself and do something to have a different different perception of your situation. You change. You take responsibility if you can't do something about the external circumstances. And there's something so vitalizing about that. The energy you gain, the moment you take responsibility for yourself and for your experience of life. It gives you the agency, the energy needed to then embark on the journey of changing and transforming your life. But if you're not taking that radical self-responsibility to start with, you don't realize your power, your capacity for leadership, your potential to impact your own life and reality, then you're just going to be like going round and round and round in like in loops and blaming others for your dissatisfaction and then just creating more and more of a mess in your life and eventually you'll just die really unfulfilled and sad (laughs) yeah but just to end it on a positive note like to take that radical self-responsibility and say i am not happy and i am not satisfied with my life so therefore i will do something about it because i can and to connect with that energy is just is the is, is that ignition force to get you started. And then things just fall into place. Remember earlier we said beyond the self, there is a web or there's something beyond the self that you can have a communication with or connection with. When you take that radical self-responsibility, you pull all that energy that you leak while complaining and blaming and stagnating and avoiding and resisting. When you pull it back into yourself and say, I will take responsibility you not only find yourself being energized and feeling courage and power and vitality, I feel like you then get everything else around you, whatever it may be, call it life again, to align with you, to help you, to come behind you and push you forward instead of constantly be in your way and block you. You know, it just starts to support you on your trajectory forward or wherever you want to go. Anahita, thank you so much. I feel just tremendously inspired by you, as I often do when we chat with each other, but it's been a while, so I personally feel so grateful to have connected with you this morning and just connected with your essence and your wisdom and your teachings and I know that those people listening will also find these nuggets of wisdom just empowering. At least that's that's my hope. And as we close, is there anything else you feel like we left out or could you share any um, upcoming, I don't know if you have any upcoming talks or classes or where people can find more about you and your work? Yeah. So first of all, also, thank you so much. I mean, from the day I met you until now, I have never received anything but like a onslaught of such sweet and sincere gratitude from you that really, I feel like one of the key reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing with so much joy is because I just remember you. And then I'm like, all right, don't give up. Like the moments when I want to give up, I remember seriously people like yourself who come to me with so much sincerity and say that this really helped me. And that just, gets me so it keeps me going so thank you so much really for your sincerity and your determination to just do this do this and go go home wherever you want to go or whoever you want to be or whatever you're you're seeking i i trust that you will get it (laughs) and then in terms of my work i'm actually as i told you when we were just chatting offline um, I'm going to be launching an online course, a simple 11-step process to help somebody who has never really done this work to start, at least to begin the journey. And um, the tools that I'm going to be sharing are based on my personal sort of training in contemplation, um, specifically in Tibetan Buddhist psychology philosophy as well as neuroscience neuropsychology some psychotherapy so everything that I've learned and then my own little insights on the that I've acquired so it's going to be a simple 11 step process that will help you at least begin the journey get rid of some of the obstacles in the way cultivate some new resources internally 
to essentially, um, yeah, to give rise to a new version of yourself that might be more in alignment with what you desire. Uh, so that's going to be launching in July. So you can find um, the registration there on my website um, for this course. Uh, it's going to be up in about a week or two weeks, the registration options. Perfect. And I'll be sure to put the links and that information in the show notes and I'll touch base with you before we launch the episode so that I have all the info. Thank you so much. I think that's all, Anahita. Thank you again, and we will catch you next time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.